The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And it is my pleasure to welcome today Ms. Norma Flores Lopez. She is the director of the Children in the Fields campaign at the Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs. She has long been an active advocate for migrant farmworker children's rights, and she continues to raise awareness of migrant farmworker issues across the country. She has testified before Congress and has appeared on national news outlets on issues related to child labor and agriculture. In addition to her years of experience as an advocate, Norma has invaluable firsthand experience with farmworker issues because she herself grew up as a child of a migrant farmworker family from South Texas. She began working in the fields at the age of 12, where she continued working until she graduated from high school. Norma graduated from the University of Texas Pan American in Edinburgh, Texas, with a bachelor's degree in communications. She also studied in Spain, and she joined the Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs in 2009. I happen to have the pleasure of hearing Norma speak about her childhood and child farm issues, through the Kellogg Food and Society Program and Food and Community Program. And I'm very grateful that I had a chance to hear her story, and I want to bring it to our listeners. So, Norma, welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, I really appreciated the stories that you told at the conference several years ago, and I thought that more people needed to understand what it was like to be a child working on a farm under very hot conditions, I'm assuming, since you were in South Texas. So tell me a little bit about your family first. How did you come to the United States, and how did you come to work on a farm in South Texas? I come from a family of many generations of farm workers. My family has roots in Mexico where they grew up and they had their own ranch, and they worked the land there for many, many years. My father was actually born in South Texas, as was my mother, and both of those were while their parents were coming into the U.S. to be able to work in the land and then on their way back home to Mexico. So both of my parents grew up working in these fields, going up north since they were young children. And so uh, even though they were both U.S.-born, a large majority of their childhood, they were raised in Mexico and grew up there and and, uh, went to school in Mexico as well. Around the second grade, my mother was pulled out of school, and because she had U.S. citizenship, she would be sent up north with other family members when the whole family couldn't go, and she would be going off with one of her other sisters that had also documentation to be in the U.S., and they would go work in the fields instead of being at school. And similar situation with my father, who was pulled out of school in sixth grade and sent also up north to go work in the fields. Um, And although both of them were U.S. citizens, they both slipped through the cracks and, and didn't end up finishing up any of their school and continue spending the rest of their lives working in the fields. And so when me and my four sisters were born, we were born into these same families of, of going up north. Our family would leave from South Texas and travel up to Indiana, Michigan, Iowa, 
uh, Ohio, Illinois. We would go to a number of different states and work in the fields. And so with me, it was probably around third or fourth grade where I first started working in the fields where after school or during the weekends, I would go join my parents since I didn't have anybody to watch me at home. I would kind of sit on the side and and help them out with little things like bringing them water, bringing them buckets, or maybe helping with some of the easier tasks. For example, if we were in the orchards, in the apple orchards, I would kind of help with some of the low-lying fruit or picking up some of the apples that had fallen off the trees from the ground. And so it wasn't until I was 12 that I started doing actual full-time work. I was able to, at that point, work legally, so I was signed up with the company and received my own paycheck, and so that's when I started working full-time, uh, which would mean for a, a migrant family that would be somewhere between you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, seven days a week usually, especially during the peak harvest. We would work three weeks in a row without any days off and just really long summers of having to be out there in the fields and during some of my weekends and even during my spring break or any other kind of breaks that I had. So I started working in the apple orchards, working detasseling cornfields, and even working in the onion fields in South Texas in extreme heat. As you mentioned, it does get very hot and humid in South Texas, and so I got to experience that while my friends got to spend their spring breaks in the beach or in the park playing and getting their tans. Um, I was earning my tan a little bit differently. And so I kept doing that up until I graduated out of high school and went on into college, and I was offered an internship opportunity that allowed me to be able to not have to go up north with my family, but instead earn money, learning some office skills, and, and that was the last time I ever had to go work in the fields. But it's something that's an issue that's still very important to me, very real to me, since both of my parents are still migrant farm workers and are getting ready to go up north once again to Iowa in a few weeks. So I thought it was interesting that you had graduated from high school, so you were able to go to school even though many children, as I understand it, don't have that opportunity. So how was it that you had the opportunity to go to school? How did that work for your family? Well, it's true. Farmer children do pay a high price, often sacrificing their education for the little bit of money that we actually earn by working in the fields. And so it's estimated that more than half of farmer youth drop out of high school. As a matter of fact, Human Rights Watch reports that it's four times the national average uh, or the national high school dropout rate for farm worker children. And so what we see a lot of the times is these kids um, have interrupted school years. And, and I experienced that myself having migrated up north. I would come to school three, four months late to my home school in Texas. But even though I would go to school, let's say, in Indiana while, I was, while my family was there working, I would come to school in, in Texas about four months late. And so when I would get into class, a lot of the grades that I had earned in Indiana wouldn't transfer over because there were different subjects. It was completely different school systems. So I would find myself having to make up a lot of these assignments and and having to not only play catch-up but still keep up with the regular schoolwork despite the fact that I didn't have a lot of that back knowledge and those early lessons um, and started the school year with everybody else. So it was an incredibly challenging situation to not only have to do that with one class or two, but to do with all of my classes, um, especially once I started getting older and the, it, and the subject started getting harder, it was much more difficult to be able to catch up. And then there were times when I was pulled out of school early, too, 
where our family, in order to try to be able to make ends meet, will try to be able to go catch one of the earlier seasons and make their way, you know, up to, for example, to Michigan. And so I would be pulled out of school uh, about a month early and enrolled in Michigan schools, but at that point, it would be a totally different subject. People are wrapping up, and so I would once again feel a little bit lost, and, and my education was shortchanged. And so you see this happening to a lot of kids where they're sometimes attending three, four different schools every year, having to, you know, go to work instead of focusing on their studies because of the of the dire poverty that their families are living in. Um, we've spoken to kids that get out of school at 3 o'clock, uh, four o'clock in the afternoon and go straight to work, sometimes working till one in the morning in, in packing houses. Other kids that wake up even earlier, you know, go to work in the fields a few hours before heading into class. And so these are kids that don't ever really have a break, don't really have an opportunity to focus on their, on their homework. And so all of this begins to catch up to them. Um, mm-hmm. and it's really easy to see how a lot of these kids end up then dropping out. And that's just talking about the kids that have been in the U.S. that have started school since kindergarten, first grade with everybody else. For those that are are recent immigrants into the U.S. that might have cultural barriers, might have language barriers, it's even harder for them to be able to try to play catch-up when they have the pressure of going out and working in the fields and never having that break, you know, being robbed of their summers and their spring breaks and their weekends to do this really labor-intensive work um, it really is something that catches up with them, and so we see these kids that are just lagging way behind in their studies. Well, I see a problem. I see many problems here. I mean, not just that children are having to really struggle to get their education, but on the campaign materials that I reviewed in preparation for our interview, there's this other factor. So they're not getting enough sleep, they're struggling to keep up with their studies, and then they face truly dangerous working conditions. So we're talking about thousands of children in the United States. They are exposed to pesticides. They have harsh environmental conditions. So you mentioned the extreme heat and humidity in South Texas, and that's certainly the case in the Midwest as well. And then there's also dangerous machinery and tools. And just to let our listeners know, the Children in the Fields campaign, there's marvelous information about all of this and more so our listeners can learn more about the program and we'll make sure and give our listeners the website. And that is the Association of Farm Worker Opportunity Programs, AFOP.org, and we'll have that on the radio. So tell me a little bit, let's go back to the fields for a moment and let's talk about some of these conditions. So do you recall, for example, ever being exposed to pesticides or how did you deal with some of those harsh environmental conditions and did you work with any dangerous machinery? What kinds of things did you witness and experience yourself? Well, today in, in America, the U.S. labor laws permit for children as young as 12 years old to be able to legally work out in fields for an unlimited amount of hours outside of school. And they're allowed to use dangerous farm equipment, work in an environment that continuously exposes them to poisonous pesticides. These are conditions that are deemed illegal in every other industry and that can lead to serious injuries and even death. And as a result, you know, there's been an estimated 33,000 children that have had farm-related injuries each year in the U.S., and more than 100 of these children die as a result of their injuries. And so these are based off of the data we've been able to get from the U.S. Department of Labor. And so 
not only are children allowed to work at such young ages in, in this dangerous industry, but in addition to that, the Fair Labor Standards Act, which are the labor laws in the U.S., also lowers the hazardous work age to just 16 years old um, mm-hmm. in agriculture, while hazardous work in all of the other industries is strictly reserved for adults. And so, for example, a kid who wants to work after school can go apply at, let's say, a local Home Depot, but they will be prohibited from operating, let's say, a forklift, but that exact same forklift in an agricultural setting, that 16-year-old is then allowed to do that. So the danger is exactly the same from the same heavy machinery, but the change in setting, agriculture, it allows for these kids to be able to operate this heavy machinery at much younger ages. And so from first-hand experience, yes, I was exposed to chemicals every day. And the I think what's even more terrifying is the fact that I was never told about what exactly these chemicals were. I didn't know what pesticides were until I was about 16, 17 years old. And I had already spent my whole childhood working in the field. Many times, farmers are told that, Pesticides are vitamins for the plants or medicine for the plants. And so we equate with medicine and vitamins as something that's not necessarily bad for us. Mm-hmm. And so we were never really explained because they're, they're not, you know, a lot of the times this kind of information gets lost when you're working on the fields. And as I mentioned, there's also those language barriers at times for some of those workers, which, of course, is not the case for me. But with me, it was just irresponsibility of our employers of not educating us what exactly was that was being applied to these plants. And so I was exposed to, you know, my whole life with pesticides without really thinking twice about it. Um, I remember working out in those fields and having those airplanes coming by and spraying the fields next to us. And because it was just so hot and humid, as you mentioned, almost welcoming that mist and, and thinking it was just water with vitamins in it and getting spray with it. And I remember in particular, there was once when I was about 12 years old that we, my family was separated and sent out into this cornfield, and we were told to work that one particular field since it was small, while the rest of the crew went on to go work at another field. And this, you know, my dad is a very calm and collected man, a very stoic, kind of just a serious man, and he never really gets too emotional or too upset. Um, It's very rare to see him that way, but I remember this particular time we were working when we started hearing the airplanes getting nearby, and as it was getting closer, we just expected it to just spray the field next to us like we've seen a million times, but this one started coming right at us, and we were actually working in these cornfields with these very sharp hooks that we were carrying with us, and I remembered very distinctly hearing my dad in a very panicked voice just yell at us to run, drop everything and just run, And, and just in a panic, all of us just dropped these hooks and tried to run as quickly as we could out of these cornfields as this airplane was coming right behind us, spraying those pesticides. And we ran out of the fields and ran across the street. And, of course, my father, very upset, called up the crew leader that we had and telling him, you know, this plane, you need to come back for us. This plane was coming at us. And, and he just shrugged it off and laughed at it and just said, oh, it must have been just some mistake. Hang tight. We're, we're on our way to pick you up. And, and they did. They came to pick us up, but... Of course, never asked us about, are we okay? Did we get sprayed? Do we need to go home? Do we need medical attention? We were simply sent back into the fields to go work. Hmm. So these are the kind of stories that we hear a lot, even to this day, from kids that are currently working of, of being constantly sprayed or exposed to these pesticides and chemicals and never really knowing what is it that we're getting sprayed with or the consequences of that. 
And even though I haven't been in the field for more than 10 years, I'm still worried about what might happen to me, you know, and if next year or the year after that, I might be, you know, diagnosed with some of these long-term diseases that get linked to pesticide exposure like cancers or Alzheimer or Parkinson's and some of these other issues with the the reproductive system too. You know, I, I one day want to be able to be a mother and that's something that still kind of weighs on my mind if, if all these chemicals that I was exposed to is going to be making, you know, create any complications for that. Mm. And a lot of times we tend to think of children as little adults when the reality is that children react very, very differently to these chemicals as adults do. Mm -hmm. And so children are actually at a higher risk when they're exposed to pesticides due to the higher skin surface area to weight ratio and their faster metabolisms and their ongoing development. And this is according to the American Journal of Public Health. And so these kids are exposed to these chemicals that have been linked to numerous immediate and long-term health problems, including asthma, dermatitis, learning disabilities, leukemia, brain tumors, and certain childhood cancers. Mm -hmm. And so the safety levels for pesticides are actually right now calculated based on an adult male, which weighs at about 150 pounds, not for women and not for children, and yet we have both women and children working out in those fields, so not even the chemicals that are being used right now are regulated for them. And as you mentioned, that's just the piece that relates to the chemical exposure that we have. There's still, of course, all the sharp tools that these kids are using out there. You know, we've talked to kids who are cutting down Christmas trees with chainsaws at the age of 12, with these kids that are operating heavy machinery at very young ages or working around them. There's also, as you mentioned, the extreme heat. The summers, especially in the Midwest, are incredibly hot. The summers in South Texas and the spring break South Texas are really hot. And not these kids are don't have reported of not always having water available to them. And I remember that was the case with me too, mm-hmm. where growing up we were taught to always carry our own water. We knew better than to be able to entrust something so important to the crew leaders because oftentimes there wouldn't be water waiting for us or the water was sitting there for two days, and you can definitely taste the difference in water when it's been sitting out for two days in those fields. And so these are ongoing issues that have very serious consequences to children who are working in the field. Norma, let me take one moment and remind our listeners that they are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Norma Flores Lopez. She is the director of the Children in the Fields campaign at the Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs. Norma, so there are many conditions in the fields that are unsafe for children. What is the Association of Farm Workers Opportunity Programs doing? You know, what would you like to see changed on a policy level to improve the situation for our harvest? And I just want to say one thing here. As a consumer, when I go to the grocery store, there is no label on my fruit or vegetable saying that this was picked by an adult or this was picked by child labor. And I wish there was some method of knowing. I always recommend that people know where their food comes from, who produced it, under what conditions. And yet I feel like you have lifted a veil of awareness about what is going on in our agricultural fields. So let, let me jump back to that first question, which is, What would you like to see changed? What are the policy issues that we can work on together, our listeners and the Association of Farm Workers? What can we do together to improve the lives for these children? 
Well, what the Children in the Fields campaign does is we strive to be able to improve the quality of life of migrants using a farmer for children by advocating for enhanced education opportunities and the elimination of discriminatory federal child labor laws in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so with that in mind, we try to be able to work with the U.S. government and with other organizations to ensure that farmer grid children have access to quality education. And so what this means is making sure that these kids have education opportunities and support so that they can be able to graduate from high school. But we even work with folks, for example, the National Migrant Seasonal Head Start Association and Office of Migrant Education and other folks to ensure that these kids have that support from when they're very, very young all through school to make sure that they have, that their teachers are much more aware of the barriers that these kids are facing and be able to help them and work with them. Because as I mentioned, having been a farm worker kid myself, there were situations in which I had teachers who would bail me the second I would come in because I was coming in too late. And so we are trying to be able to raise awareness to ensure that these kids have an access to education because it's only through getting an education will they be able to break the cycle of generational poverty in which we're seeing farm workers who then take their children, those children growing up, dropping out of school, and then taking their children as well. So the only way we see that they can be able to break that is to be able to actually get their high school diploma, get their college diploma. And I know you mentioned this in my bio earlier, but actually just last month I graduated with my master's in public policy, being the first in my family to be able to get a master's degree. And so you know, I'm trying to practice what I preach and, and showing these kids that just because you come from a farm worker family doesn't mean you can't go beyond that and be able to get higher education, that this is something that is possible for them. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, uh, we're also working, as I mentioned, with federal policies. We have created community coalitions in North Carolina and in Texas. We have two nonprofits that are operating. In North Carolina, it's NC Field, and in South Texas, it's Migrants in Action. And so these are community coalitions that have become nonprofits that are working to do advocacy from the grassroots level and to uh, creating better communities for farm worker children. And so they're working with youth directly. In North Carolina, we have a youth council, Poder Juvenil Campesino, which is doing phenomenal work, and especially now with working on advocating for child labor to end in the tobacco fields of North Carolina. So they've been doing really phenomenal work and working closely with Human Rights Watch on a recent report that they put together that talks about the dangers of children working in agriculture. And so we're getting a lot of progress done on the community level being able to work on some of these state policies as well, and then moving our way up to the federal level in which we work closely with the administration, with different government agencies, with Congress, trying to be able to educate them about these issues. And our biggest goal is to be able to close this loophole that allows for children as young as 12 to be able to work in these dangerous conditions and doing hazardous work at the age of 16. Mm -hmm. We think that that puts these children in danger and has had this detrimental effect on the farm worker community where it puts farm worker children at risk where they have both short-term and long-term health consequences that I've described and also those educational barriers. And so what we're calling for is for the equalization of the child labor laws. The same way children are protected and working in all the other industries where they are ensured that they're that the task that they're doing is safe for them, where they are limited to the number of hours that they can work to ensure that it doesn't conflict with their schools and their childhood. We want to see that same kind of attention 
and protections built in to child labor laws in agriculture here in the U.S. Right now, there are a number of countries that have better child labor laws around the world, and while the U.S. is considered a leader in human rights and is giving millions of dollars abroad to eradicate child labor around the world, it's, it's failing to protect children that are here in the U.S. And so that's been our biggest push is to equalize those child labor laws and to ensure that these kids have access to educational opportunities. It's um, ironic, isn't it, that that situation exists? And from a consumer perspective, I will certainly lead people to the websites that you have. The report that you sent me on child workers on tobacco farms, I had no idea that this even existed. And the dangers specifically related to tobacco, you know, it's dangerous working in agricultural fields as it is, but then tobacco adds another layer of harm. So that's the Human Rights Watch report, and I'll make sure that our listeners also have access to that. Well, who are the biggest opponents? You know, when you go to Washington, D.C., and you try to lobby or advocate for fair child labor laws, who, is, who are you fighting against? It's really difficult to be able to get any progress in some of these protections that we're trying to see for farm worker children. What we see is Big Ag and, and their lobby has made sure that Americans believe this, this myth that a lot of the foods that they eat come from these small family farms. They fail to recognize the fact that the landscape has changed tremendously. And so these big corporate farms in which these farm worker children are working at, they don't pay the same kind of attention as maybe some of the listeners who might have had those experiences of growing up on a farm or in an agricultural community and going up the road and working on their neighbor's farm. The reality is very different for farm worker children. This isn't the farm owner that gets to know you, that ensures that you're okay and goes to church with your mom and dad. That's not the kind of situation here. And so agricultural industry has put in a lot of money to ensure that that is the myth that continues to be perpetuated instead of what the reality is, that these children that are exploited, children that are asked to work long hours and having to sacrifice their health, their education, their childhoods, all for very, very low pay. And so we've had a very much an uphill battle in trying to be able to match the reach that they have um, both in Congress and across the country in perpetuating this idea. And as you've mentioned earlier about it's very difficult for consumers to be able to find out if there's child labor in the laws. And that goes back to, again, these huge agribusinesses that are ensuring that people don't realize where their food is coming from. And unfortunately, as Americans, we've become very disconnected about how our food is produced. There's a lot of information out there about eating healthier foods, about eating organic foods, foods that are local. Those are information that's rather easy to be able to see, but there's not enough push to ensure that people, there's not enough of a demand from people, from consumers, to find out what kind of conditions the farm workers are laboring in, what kind of pay they received, and as you mentioned, if child labor is included in there. And so it's not something that they're doing wrong, that, that they're required to report. These 12-year-olds working out there is very much so legal, and so that is something that we need to change in order to make sure that 
less children are on those fields. Norma, we'll have to leave it at that. Unfortunately, our time has flown by. But I want to make sure that our listeners know that we have been speaking with Norma Flores Lopez. She is the director of the Children in the Fields campaign at the Association of Farmworker Opportunity Programs. We will provide the link to that organization so that you can learn more about their work and join in advocacy campaigns and learn more about where our food does indeed come from and vote with our dollars and be in communication with our legislators. Let them know that we care very much. In closing, I want to thank Norma for being my guest, thank our listeners for joining us, and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Norma, thank you so much for sharing your information. Mm-hmm.